Good morning, church. It is great to be with you guys. Um, we are going to be looking at the second chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians 2. Uh, last week, we looked at Ephesians 1, the fundamentals of godly unity. We looked at the gift of grace God offers in His Son, the grand pl- plan of peace to bring everything in heaven and on earth under one head, which is Christ. We looked at the fact that this plan is for those who are holy and faithful. No one save, always saved. We have to choose to be holy and faithful. And then we looked at the fundamentals of our individual calling, especially as, re- as it relates to our relationship with God and each other. Today we're going to look at some of the challenges to this godly unity that God is fostering and developing within His church. We're looking at Ephesians 2, and the title, as you would have guessed, The Challenges to Godly Unity. So, my first point um, for today's message, Godly Unity for the Individual in a Spiritual War. So, I'll repeat that. Godly Unity for the Individual in a Spiritual War. And it's from Ephesians 2 verse 1, reading straight down to verse 10. So, it's a a fairly sizable read, right? And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. You know, in Ephesians 2, we learn that anyone who is not in Christ is a literal zombie, the walking dead. As Ephesians 1, 1 says, you are dead in your transgressions apart from Christ. But more than that, apparently it's not just our own sinful nature at work. Um, I don't know if you all remember Romans 7, um, but... Th- but Romans 7 essentially talks about our sinful nature, right? But in this particular chapter of Ephesians, right, we, we, um, those of us who are, those who are living in sin and according to the ways of this world are actually following the ruler who exercise, exercises authority of the lower heavens, or in some translations, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And that is essentially the devil. And the devil translates to the adversary. The devil is our adversary, our enemy. This adversary is, is according to the initial part of tree, um, of, of um, verse 3, is influencing our flesh and thoughts. Influencing them for what, you may ask? For us to sin, to disobey God. Uh, last week I mentioned the story of, that, that took place in the Garden of Eden. Um, and this is what is playing out again in these couple of verses. In, 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 in Genesis 3, the devil masqueraded as a serpent and influenced Eve through her and Adam's thoughts and flesh. 
So we're going to look a little bit at that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see how the devil started to influence Eve's thoughts? He sowed doubts by asking a very loaded question. Did God really say? He's taking her away from the plain instruction of God's word of not eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, a very clear instruction, no ambiguity, but by influencing her thoughts through that disarming question, it sent a plain instruction into an area of subjectivity where he could encourage her to rationalize God's commands. That's how the, the devil moves, our adversary. However, this is not done in isolation, just the influence, not the thoughts alone. The devil simultaneously works on our desires. In verse 5 again, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In verse 6 of chapter 3 in Genesis, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Our desires play a big part in tipping these thoughts over into acting out. Our desires, as scripture says in 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. We are in a literal, spiritual war. Our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He and his army of spiritually fallen are infecting the thoughts of the people of this world through our desires and our thoughts so that we will disobey God and sin. Going back to Ephesians 2, anyone who lives like this, according to the latter part of verse 3, are deserving of the wrath of God. Some of the sins mentioned in chapter 5 in Ephesians um, are not only for persons who are in this world and are subject to these spirits, but even Christians, apparently in chapter 5, were living under God's wrath. If we read from Ephesians 5 verse 3, it says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Verse 6, listen to this very carefully. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God's wrath. Therefore, do not be partners with them. We all know the challenge that we face as we battle these spiritual forces playing with our thoughts and our desires. We see it in our world every day. A plethora of issues that arise out of these individual battles. All kinds of psychological disorders, immorality, greed, impurity, 
the imbalance of the rich and the poor, the issues of racism and injustice, and many more are all playing out before our eyes. In our individual lives and challenges, we see the struggle that we face in our interpersonal relationships, our own battle with our, own, also with our sinful nature. In Ephesians 6 verse 10, the same book again, the last chapter, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in His mighty power. Put on the full arm of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So it's pointing again to a spiritual reality. For struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are fighting a seriously intense spiritual battle. So what can we do in the face of this enemy that is warring against us? I have some bad news. By ourselves, we can do absolutely nothing. Our efforts will fail miserably. We need a savior. Someone much stronger than we are and stronger than our enemy to save us. Going back to Ephesians 2 in verse 4. Our Savior comes, and not just in actions, but His character. And these should sound familiar to us as we looked at 15 characteristics of God in January. So here's a recap. From verse 4, it talks about God who is rich in mercy. God is not just merciful, He is rich in it. And does not want to treat us as our sins deserve. His great love. God's love is so vast and beyond our full understanding. The best representation of it is His willing sacrifice of Himself, His Son, while we were His enemies. Reading on, He has chosen to make us alive. Remember, apart from this Savior, we are walking zombies. He has chosen to make us alive because of His character, His rich mercy, and His great love. Absolutely nothing on our part motivates this. It's because of Himself that He does this. We are saved by grace. This lavish, beautiful, unmerited gift that God offers in the sacrifice of His Son. Apparently, we who are Christians, as we read on in Ephesians 2, are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is the concept of already but not yet that scholars use to describe people who are saved and in God's church, that we are already with God, but just not yet with God. It's a strange truth that we live out in the body of Christ, the church. In verse 8, it's a, it's a summary of this idea that it's through God's gift that we are saved. The only requirement on our path, part is faith, not works. Works being our own personal righteous deeds that we think makes us good and innocent people. But it's grace that actually saves us if we choose to accept it through faith. And what is faith? Faith is, is hearing the message, the words of God, believing in them and acting upon them. That is what proves faith. You hear something, you believe it, and you act on it. It's not just something that stays in your head. This is worth making a distinction because many in the Christian world believe that all you must do is believe or say a prayer when this would not be faith by itself or by the Bible standards. God's word gives clear commands as how one becomes saved by grace. Peter, when giving the first message to what would be the newly formed church in Acts 2 says, in verse 36, 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord or God will call. I mean, come on, how clear can you get? Added to which, every example of people being saved in the New Testament points to these truths. Yet man in his desire for the knowledge of good and evil, or rather, to redefine good and evil, continuously is looking to create his own way, his own works of doing things rather than the way prescribed by God. We must have genuine faith, which is obedient actions in conformity to the words of God. The passage goes on to share that even though we are not saved by our works, this is going back to Ephesians 2, we are saved for works. Sounds kind of contradictory, right? But it's not. We are not saved by our man-made works of righteousness or systems, thoughts, ideas of what is good and what is evil, but rather through God's grace, through faith, us submitting to Jesus and his lordship over our lives. Somehow, as we enter this process, God opens up his plans for our lives, that, each of, that we each as individuals are God's creation, his handiwork, as some translations say, that we are to do work that God prepared in advance for us to do. Yes, you have not happened by luck and chance. God wants people who would show true faithfulness to him and obey him. He'll open up his plans to you and lead you in a full life in Christ, Jesus. Each one of us individually, God has a plan of grace and peace for us as individuals. For me as an individual, how has this idea of or reality of God's unity played out in my life? I grew up in a home challenged by domestic violence in a community where violence and drug abuse pervaded so much of life. Many of you would probably remember me sharing about my family being murdered in that inf infamous dual shady killing of the Babylon family in Williamsville in 1994. The year before, my uncle had murdered his wife and burned himself alive in his house while his two young daughters barely escaped with their lives. I went to one of the, um, I went to Naprima College in Seoul, but I was always lost about who I was and what I would do in life. I entered UE in 1998 and for a full year watched as all the temptations of being away from parental guidance started to take a toll on me. From the alcohol, pornography, my mind continually wrapped up in the thoughts of sex and going to bed with a young woman I was involved with. The only thing I could, could was try and practice what my mother advised me before going to UE. Make sure and read your Bible and pray. And several nights I would try to read and understand, pray and crying in my heart as I felt so hopeless and lost. Then one day, I noticed these group of guys playing in a football tournament on the Sir Frank Royal Field, right next to Canada Hall. Tyrone Marcus, Roger Blash, Joseph Budusing, and Justin Dukey. They were being pummeled by the other team, and not with goals, but the physical tackles could have caused some serious injury. At one point, Tyrone, whom I did not know at the time, ran off the field and in the full view of everyone, knelt down and prayed. One of my friends stood next to me and said, Them fellas have to be godmen. Not too long after that, Justin Dukey would, in his own unique and indomitable style, would make his way into the apartment building I was staying, make himself very comfortable in our fridge and on, and on our couch. I was in a, staying in a villa with four other friends who I went to school with. He would proceed to get all of our timetables and select times when we were available and make appointments to study the Bible. Three of us were studying, but I was the only one who chose to make Jesus Lord of my life. Grace and peace. 
I was I was united to God and Christ. I remember the feeling of weightlessness when I had confessed my sins, the excitement when I was baptized, and the fear afterwards of recognizing that I had made a lifelong commitment. 21 years later, I do not regret those decisions. And even though as a disciple I have faced many hardships, my own battles with impurity and immorality, relational struggles, and this search for this work that God has created beforehand for me as an individual, in my heart, I know that I am choosing to be faithful and walk according to God's plan and not my own. At times I make mistakes, but as long as I stay in the faith, in the fellowship, and choose to trust in Him, He'll do the work and see me through. What about you? Will you allow God's grace and peace, godly unity, to impact you? Will you choose to be united to God, to surrender to Him in faith, to believe in His Son, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and enter into this lifelong adventure of relationship and purpose according to the will of God with His Spirit living within you? My brothers and sisters, will you be holy and faithful and continue to submit to God's words, His ways and His plans for your life? My second point, godly unity in diversity. And this is taken from Ephesians 2 verse 11 to 17. So I read, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body, and through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So again, godly unity and diversity. So here now we see the major example of how these spiritual forces of evil were trying to disrupt God's plan. The major challenge for the first century church is what was commonly, commonly known as the Jew-Gentile conflict. The Jewish Christians were having a hard time accepting that God's plan of making everything come under one head in his church, which is Christ, would have included the Gentiles. Basically, everyone else who was not of Jewish heritage. Some of them wanted to add on the requirements of the Mosaic laws, such as circumcision, the food laws, etc., on top of the simple message of faith in Jesus, repentance, baptism, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in order for us to live continual, holy, and faithful lives in a community of believers in this lost world. But Paul reminded them in Ephesians, in the, um, uh, and the Ephesian Gentiles in verse 13, that they were brought near to God, not by some self-righteous law keeping, but by the blood shed by Jesus for our sins. No, not anything else. Apart from this sacrifice, we would still be the walking dead. So I'll repeat that. Paul reminded them that they were brought near to God, not by some self-righteous law keeping, but by the blood shed by Jesus for our sins. Paul then uses peace four times in the next three verses. And if you remember the Greek word Irene from, la from last week, it, 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 it has this idea of, of oneness, of harmony, of harmony, the idea of unity is being expressed here for this multiracial, multi-ethnic group of believers. 
In verse 14, Jesus is the peace that breaks down the divided wall of hostility. No grand plan by any man, no ideology, no system. It is Jesus who breaks down this dividing wall of hostility. In verse 15, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and express regulations. That is not any man, again, not any man-made ideology or system, which is what the Jewish system had become. Right? It could, the Jewish system had allowances for people who were non-Jews to become part of the Jewish nation. But it had become, because of their, their add-on in terms of rules and regulations and traditions, it became so exclusive that it excluded others to the gift that God had given the world through the Jewish nation. So Jesus had put, to, had put to no effect this all this entire law system that was under the Jewish system. Rather, it's Jesus and his sacrifice that provides the opportunity for a relationship with God and for unity as all peoples of God. In verse 16 to 17, the reason why God made the Jewish system of no effect was so that he could bring peace. Remember I said it occurred four times in these last two um, two more times in these last two verses, four times in all in the verses that I read. The harmony and the unity between the races under one head, which is Jesus. The spiritual forces of evil seek to divide and destroy, but Jesus cares for all nations, not just the Jews alone, and not just the Gentiles alone. The Jews and Gentiles, all races, all nations, and he wants to bring together all of mankind in a saved relationship with God through faith in him. In the Republic of Ireland during the 1980s and early 1990s, you heard a lot about the Irish Revolutionary Army. I remember um, looking at TTT News back in the day and you would see all the bombings and the killings that would happen in Ireland. Right? On the 8th of November in 1987, a bomb planted by the Provisional IRA exploded during the Enniskillen's Remembrance Day Parade, injuring a man by the name of Gordon Wilson and fatally injuring his daughter Marie, a nurse. In an emotional television interview with the BBC, only hours after the bombing, um, Wilson re 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 records or uh, responds to the, um, the blast. He was pulled from the blast. The blast which buried Wilson and his daughter, Marine Rubble, unable to move, he had held her hand and comforted her as she lay dying. Her last words were, Daddy, I love you very much. Five minutes later, rescuers pulled Wilson and his daughter out from under the collapsed building. Marie never regained consciousness and died later in the hospital. Gordon Wilson's words to the BBC, right, very soon after, I bear no ill will, I bear no grudge, were reported worldwide, becoming among the most remembered quotations from the troubles that was going through in Ireland at the time. Whereas the IRA attacks in Northern Ireland often result in reprisal by loyalists, Wilson's call for forgiveness and reconciliation came to be called the spirit of Enniskillen. Now, if you know anything about that particular conflict, that conflict was really a battle between Catholics and Protestants, which was what is, what is supposed to be the Church of Christ. Well, we know, we know all the other stuff, yeah, but the idea is that they represent the Church of Christ. And this division within the Church led to such violence. As a peace campaigner, Wilson held many meetings with members of the Sinn Féin, he also met once with the representatives of the, the provisional IRA, the same group who killed him, his daughter. Wilson sought to understand the reasons for the Remembrance Day bombing in Enniskillen. He also held talks with loyalist paramilitaries in an attempt to persuade them to abandon violence. 
On Wikipedia, the description of Gordon Wilson's personal history and legacy goes as follows. William Gordon Wilson was born in the town of Manor Hamilton in County Leitrim, in the Irish Free State on the 25th of September 1927. A few years after the partition of Ireland, his parents, George Wilson and Henrietta Conn, married in 1926. Wilson was the eldest of four children, had a happy childhood in a strongly Methodist household with his three sisters, Joan, Wilma and Dorothy. Educated at Wesley College, Dublin, Wilson was a man of strong Christian faith and attended Enniskillen Methodist Church. He spent most of his adult life running the family drapery shop in High Street, Enniskillen, County Fermanagh. People who had met Wilson in the course of his piecework have described him as one of the most inspiring and caring men they had ever met. Just to remind you of his words right after the bombing. I bear no ill will, I bear no grudge. He sought to bring God's peace to a very, very challenging situation. As our present world is being pressure tested during these COVID times and fissures of division, malice and hate are being exposed by spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, how do we respond to a world that is constantly calling us to fall in line with the ideologies of men? Jesus is the only true source of peace and unity. Harmony as God intended. Let us share this love of Christ into our lost world and not fall prey to the deceitful, divisive schemes that abound. My third and final point, godly unity through the Trinity. And that is taken from verse 18 to verse 22. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So my final point is godly unity through the Trinity. And you can see it straight away in verse 18. So it says, For through him, that's Jesus and his sacrifice, we both, as Jews and Gentiles, all races, have access by one Spirit so once we have believed the message of Jesus, repented and been baptized, we are filled with God's Holy Spirit. We, no long, we are no longer the walking dead, but alive. And now, and now have access to God the Father. So you see the three persons of the Godhead at work in us individually and as a community, no matter our background and our race. And this is all in one verse. As men, God did not leave it obscure for, for the first century Christians, but provided a platform upon which they could grow and develop. In verse 20, God gave them apostles. These are men who would have been directly commissioned by Jesus and the prophets. And Sorry, uh, the, uh, God gave us the apostles. These are men who would have been directly commissioned by Jesus. He also gave us the prophets, men who were given the gift to understand by God's power things that would happen in the future. In addition, many of them were eyewitnesses of Jesus in the flesh. In my opinion, you're seeing almost a, a, another Trinitarian kind of concept here. The apostles, the prophets, and Jesus himself. Right? And God gave the church these gifts to navigate the issues that the early church would have faced before the gospel and the letters of the New Testament were written down and compiled. God is so compassionate and caring. He provided all of these things according to his plan and his will for the development of the early church. But these provisions points us back 
to the real Godhead in verse 21 to 22. This whole building, as these verses point out, the church is being put together by God the Father so that we together will be a holy sanctuary in Jesus as his body, his bride. In verse 22, the Holy Spirit dwells among us as we are built up together and grow in godly unity. Again, you see the three aspects of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will give life in a group that shows faithfulness to His will, plans, and ways of doing things, not our own. I don't think it's by chance that God has allowed us to study out the Trinity um, for the first nine weeks of the year and then brought godly unity into focus through the book of Ephesians. In 2003, our church received what many consider severe discipline from the Lord when many of our practices and ways of doing things were found to be focused more on men than on God. It's been a challenging road for us to unlearn some of these patterns of behavior. God has been patient and kind as many of us have gone on processes of transformation that God has carried out on us as individuals and collectively as a church. If we are not doing things in accordance with God's ways, will, and plans, we will all be found out eventually. Let us look to the unity in the Trinity as we strive to bring glory to God here on earth and in our, our neck of the woods, Trinidad and Tobago. In conclusion, godly unity is not just going to happen for us. God will bring it about. But we must show ourselves faithful to his commands, his will, and his way of doing things. The devil and his army are literally hell-bent to keep you out of you keep you out or kick you out of God's kingdom. They are moving among the nations promoting division and hatred, ideologies that are like children horses perpetuating a form of godliness but denying its power. Our only hope is in Jesus and submission to his words, his plans and his way of doing things. Amen. Let's go before God in a word of prayer this time. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, um, you are prompting us, Father, to godly unity. You're showing for us the fundamentals of what this entails. You're also showing us the challenges that we will face as we, we strive to hold on to you and be united together in glorification of you. Please be with us, God, as a church, as a body of believers. Be with our friends and family, those who are crying out for you, Father. Help us, Lord, to be about your will and your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.